Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, this is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host along with Ronaldo Brudico for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society. Ronaldo is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a wealth advisor and a state planning consultant with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering two major topics, along with our lightning round. As always, we will include questions and comments from you, our audience, many of which we've already received in our queue, email queue. We all, and as I mentioned, if you would like to place a question, uh, please dial into us at area code 347-989-8946 and hit the number one key. Again, that's 347-989-8946 and hit the number one key if you'd like to raise a question. Again, one of the purposes of these monthly calls is to pre- present you, our members and listeners, with concrete, actionable ideas. Today, we will be discussing, one, the impact of the lame duck U.S. Congress on your economic future, including an update on the status of estate tax and other tax issues that is actually being debated as we speak. And two, we're going to look at considerations involved in diversifying your assets through investments outside the United States, including China, Brazil, and Switzerland, and these are as a possible hedge against economic upheaval. After the first segment, we'll be doing our standard lightning round, which is a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes such as bonds, the dollar, energy, real estate, uh, with particular emphasis on ideas you can use yourself. Today's focus is going to be on how investors can use both exchange-traded funds, or ETFs, and closed-end funds, that kind of a cousin to ETFs, uh, which are also named, known as CEFs, uh, how these can facilitate your investments. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Ronaldo for his introduction. And again, Ronaldo, one of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present our members with concrete, actionable ideas that reflect the Academy's desire to bring socially, conscious, I'm sorry, socially conscious practices on business and society. Can you expand upon this today in light of what's going on in Washington? Yeah, thank you, Howard, and thanks for opening the show. Um, I think today is probably one of the best days to, to look at um, the World Business Academy's commitment to economic information packaged within the wrapper of social considerations. Uh, I've been writing a column, as most of you know, for many, many years called Common Sense, which I spell with the C and the line through it, because common sense is the way I articulate uh, what makes good economic sense, which is also what you would consider to be commonsensical, because it's the kind of thing you could have learned at your mother's knee or uh, as it was popularized in the book, everything you learn, you, you really do by, by grade school, by kindergarten. So I, I think that the, um, the, 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 the question today, which is happening as we speak, is the Democratic Party in the House, their resistance to the tax deal that Obama and the Republicans have created. Uh, clearly he's got a minor, a, a significant revolt on his hands. Uh, within the last hour and a half, the Democratic caucus of the House voted to not approve that tax deal. Many people believe that it will still get done because um, a significant number of Democrats, I guess 54, have signed a letter saying don't do it. That leaves a whole bunch left who have, who are either on the fence or willing to go through with it. And, of course, the Republicans are very uh, gleefully willing to go through with it. So because basically it was the package that they they think they wanted. Now, why I call it an interesting time to talk about economic facts and the wrapper of social uh, of the social context is because 
I think the place to start with this tax analysis and its impact on you as a listener and on the country as a whole, the, way to, the place to start is, is with a moral question, a really a social question. And that question is this. Given whether, in fact, uh, the president's characterization was accurate when he said uh, negotiating with the Senate Republicans was uh, basically like negotiating with hijackers, um, and, and many people have used the word uh, economic extortion to describe this tax bill, because they see two things in it that are enormously unpopular and, and unproductive. One clearly is tax break, extension of tax breaks for the top 2% of the wealthy in this country. Uh, those, that, that break alone will be $70 billion a year for the two years it's been enacted, or $140 billion worth of money, in effect, that we will let the highest 2% of our uh, income groups keep at a time when we desperately need to start looking at fiscal restraint. So it's $140 billion worth of payments, if you will, to get something through. Uh, there's an equal, I think there's a, we'll talk about it later when we discuss the, the implications of the, the minutiae of this, this proposal, but there's also a significant amount of money that's going to be swept uh, into very rich people's pockets through the changes in the estate tax, because what this bill does, if it goes through, is virtually eliminate estate taxes. Um, and that's an interesting question all by itself. Right. But the moral well, question. The moral question is, what about the fact that if he doesn't go through with it, two million people have lost their jobless benefits already, and another one to two million will lose them in January. That's a moral question. How can you let that happen is really the ultimate question. And the second question is, is it smart from the economic point of view to let it happen? So those are the social questions wrapped, I believe, around the economic ones. You going to throw something in, Howard? I say before we launch into a full discussion of the details of these questions, we do already have one question coming in that I'd like to open up the line to ask you, and that's in the 202 area code, and the last four digits of the number is 1750. So I'm going to open up that line, and you're now live, and go ahead, ask your question, and tell us who you are. uh, This is Matt Renner. Uh, I'm calling. My question is: you, you started to touch on it, but I wanted to ask you about the extension of tax cuts and basically the trade-off between holding firm and costing the, the, the tax cuts to the, uh, to the people who are, I'm sorry, it costing the jobless benefits in order to make a moral point or to, to try and stand firm on this argument. So I guess you're going to address that later. That actually well, is our topic, Matt. Yeah, in whole. So um, I'm going to, again, close your line down and then switch back to you and Ronaldo. And, again, why don't we launch into that full-scale discussion? Yeah, thanks, uh, what Matt, is the impact of all this and what's going to happen? Well, Matt, thanks for calling in. And, and there's one impact I wasn't going to mention, but since you phrased the question you did the way you did, um, the Internal Revenue Service calculates how will you all, will play, all of us will pay our taxes next year in software that's basically written and in the can right now. They don't wait till January 1 to write the software because they have to calculate from January 1. So everything that they're assuming will happen, they've already made in their calculations. And one of the questions is, every day you go closer to a January 1 deadline without certainty, you build a tremendous amount of expense and uncertainty into the system in terms of the collection process itself because the IRS has to adapt to it, which is one of the arguments that sophisticated people make about not letting it go past January 1. Now, let's talk about the the, the moral issue, though. If the question is, are we willing to play chicken a little bit longer to see if we could improve the bill, then I think there's a fair argument that could have been made that the president could have played chicken longer. And maybe what the House Democrats are doing, because I think that's what I hear Welsh is articulating, is he's trying to get 
some more things done if we're going to pay this enormous extortionate fee to the wealthiest 2%. Now, that to me is morally troubling. I mean, why should we have to pay $140 billion to do the right thing for the unemployed? To me, it just doesn't make any sense, and it's a moral question. But it's also a practical question, because if we don't get it done, I don't want to be responsible for those 2 million people who lost their benefits last week, being without any financial safety net in the 13 months ahead. So from my point of view, if it's a terrible bargain being forced at the point of a gun, so to speak, okay, you can complain about it. But at the end of the day, I'm more committed to those 2 million people who have already lost their benefits and the 1 to 2 million more in January who will lose them than I am to the principle of not letting $70 billion a year get hijacked out of the U.S. Treasury. Now, there's one other component to that analysis, and that's the playing chicken part. And I'd like to throw it out an idea, and I hope someone from the administration is listening. I think there's a way to get this done and bring peace to the household, and that is I think the Democrats need a little bit more for what they're giving up. You know, uh, the definition of, of the word compromise is kind of interesting. The definition, if you look in the dictionary, is it's basically an agreement or a settlement of a dispute that is reached by each side making concessions. We know what the Republicans want, and they've said it quite clearly. They want relief for the wealthiest 2%, and they want to eliminate, in effect, the estate tax. What the Democrats have said is they want a $750 billion stimulus program, and I think the Democrats got it. In other words, if you take the $900 billion that this plan will probably cost, and there's some debate whether it's 650 or $900 billion, and we can talk about that later in terms of the estate tax. But if you take the $900 billion worst-case number, of that, $140 billion is going to go to the wealthiest 2%. That leaves $760 billion that isn't. Now, the estate tax, you throw that in, might be another 60 to $120 billion. But somewhere between 500 and $760 billion of immediate stimulus that's going to happen starting in January is what the president got. Now, for those people who listen to this program at any length of time, you know we, like Paul Krugman and Joseph Stiglitz, since last March have been recommending at least 500 to 750 billion more in stimulus in order to move the unemployment rate down. The president could not get it last year. There's a question I have in my mind if actually the Republicans haven't been too clever again by half, meaning that what the Republicans have done is served up to the president a way to get $750 billion of the stimulus into the economy, which in fact will lower the unemployment rate by one to one and a half points at least. In addition, Ronaldo, which, let, let me interrupt you for a moment, if I can, sure. if I may. Maybe I think for our listeners, maybe you can detail a little bit um, what the Republicans are getting out of this bill and what the Democrats hope to get out of this bill, if it, presuming it passes in some form that's similar to what's been proposed, so that we really understand uh, the net sum game on both sides and why right. this may or may not happen. Yeah. Okay, and then I'm going to come back to what I think would be the sweetener that would make the Democrats go along. Okay, the first thing is the Republicans are getting a uh, the, the Bush tax cuts reinstated for a two-year period. So we know statistically that's a $70 billion per year tax benefit to the richest 2% of this country, for people making a quarter million dollars or more per year, who clearly do not need that tax break. And that $70 billion times two, or $140 billion, comes directly against borrowing. So that goes straight into the deficit. No benefit whatsoever, no economic stimulus whatsoever. The remaining $760 billion, which is comprised of a 2% payroll tax, uh, which, which is excellent, by the way, because that's the quickest way to get money into circulation is to give people uh, – if, if Johnny Lunchbucket gets a 2% break in his payroll tax deduction, he can immediately go out and do some deferred com uh, spending. He can go out and spend it at Christmas. He can spend it on 
new boots, new jeans, uh, a new TV set or whatever. So it's a great way to stimulate the economy. The other thing the Republicans got, which doesn't really cost the Democrats anything, and, and Ezra Klein of the Washington uh, Post uh, did a great job analyzing, analyzing this yesterday, they got an acceleration of depreciation so the, the depreciation you would have gotten in 2012, 13, and 14 as a business, you're going to get in 2011, so you get to take the deduction sooner, but you pay it all back in 2012, 13, and 14. So it shifts money to business, frees it up a little in 2012, 2011, gets it back in 2012, 2013. When you net out, with, except for the amount of the effect of inflation, which is low right now, that basically is a trade-off. It doesn't really cost the, the deficit, doesn't cost the government. The, the, the big thing that the, Repub the Democrats are getting out of this, oh, then I think the estate tax, of course. They, what they've said is they want to take the estate tax, which right now uh, would be $3.5 uh, I believe, um, for a single person, uh, 5 for a couple. They want to take it up to 7 and $10 million respectively. And the reason is when you get to the size of a, an exemption that the Republicans are asking for, you have, in effect, eliminated the state tax. I've heard some commentators say that there may be as many as 38,000 families still who would have a state tax to pay in the United States. But anybody in that 38,000 who, by definition, have a state of 10 million or more already has a financial advisor and hopefully an attorney, unless they're asleep at the switch, and they've already figured out how to avoid that 10 million anyway. So, net effect, they're trying to get rid of the state tax. Let me weigh in on that for a moment, since that's my specialty sure. area. Is that for many years, the estate tax exemption per person, meaning when you die, if you have assets under this amount, you, there's no tax. That had been around $2 million. It has gradually creeped up over the years uh, under the Bush bill uh, till this year where there was zero uh, limit on what you could shield. Uh, if the bill expired, it would go back to a mere $1 million exemption per person which means if you owned a house in New York or California and any other assets, all of a sudden most middle-class people would suddenly be facing an estate tax. By raising it to $5 million per person, um, which is, again, $10 million per couple in most cases, and that $10 million can usually be shielded through a combination of family um, trusts and charitable giving trusts, you effectively wipe out the tax on the majority of those people who might be subject to it. And again, as Ronaldo mentioned, anyone over $10 million in assets usually has fairly sophisticated estate planners already working on their assets um, and generally tend not to pay any estate tax because they've sheltered it all through a variety of uh, charitable trusts and other similar vehicles. So in effect, even though the limit has been raised to five, the practical effect is to give the Republicans what they want, which is, in practice, essentially no state tax. Yeah. So the, the specific is the three and a half goes to five, the five goes, the seven goes to ten. But when you do that, and you combine it with existing loopholes, which permit you to hold property outside of your legal name but in a trust for your benefit, when you combine all those things together and, and, and the estate other state planning devices, it's it's tantamount to eliminating the estate tax. And just to put a number to that, I've seen people all over the map over what that's going to cost in the next 10 years. I've seen numbers as high as $660 billion or $60 billion a year. I think that's way overstated because for the reasons Howard and I just gave, most people with large estates already are doing planning. I'm not sure it's going to cost $600 billion. But even if you assume it does, that's $60 billion times, uh, say, in the next two years is $120 billion. You got seventy billion uh, on the number two percent, top two percent. That's one hundred and forty. So that's about two hundred and sixty million dollars. Worst case, 
that the, the Republicans got for their extortion, if you will, for their, for their putting the gun to the president's head. What the president got was the balance, 500 to 750 billion, depending on how you calculate it, of, of, of benefits that go immediately to stimulate the economy. And interestingly enough, will lower unemployment, which the Republicans really don't want because they've said their principal goal is to defeat Obama in 2012, which means they want the economy to do a double dip. Now, let me just do one more thing before I give you what I hope would be the solution. <clears throat> we, we believe at the Academy, and we've developed this for a long time, that within six to nine months of the House changing hands, that there would be a high probability of a double dip. If this bill goes through, and I, and I want you to know that not only am I saying this, but I did a lot of researching this morning and last night. I'm in the company with Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, uh, the Citigroup, uh, most independent economist, uh, 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 economist from Dartmouth, Larry Summers, everybody, and Summers is a guy I normally don't agree with much, we all agree that this will avoid a double dip. Will it prevent it indefinitely? Can't tell you. But it is very less likely to happen in 2011. Without this stimulus, the pressure on the Fed, as someone said this morning, Ben Bernanke is the happiest guy in the world because he's been trying to do it all with QE2, which is very, very disruptive and dangerous. So now we have fiscal policy coming into play as well as monetary policy. That should be adequate to avoid a double dip in 2011. That will have very powerful impacts for the economy as a whole and, by the way, will be very good for deficit reduction. So the, 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 the net net effect is, even though I don't like it, I would think the Democrats would be well advised to stomach this and do the right thing by the unemployed, do the right thing by the economy. Yes, it's been extracted at the point of a gun. So what? That's the nature of politics, I guess. Here's my solution, though, to how to get it passed. I think what somebody needs to do is call up Mitch McConnell and say, you know, I got this little revolt going on in the House Democrats, and there's one way to solve it, Mitch, it will cost you nothing. Here's what I want you to do. Let the DREAM Act go through today, and let Don't Ask, Don't Tell go through. If you let those two go through, you'll swing so many votes from the, de from the Progressive Caucus that the Democratic opposition will fold. It doesn't cost them anything anyway, because they're probably going to go through anyway. And if they don't, it's bigger problems for the Republicans, because the log cabin Republicans, which is the gay aspect of the, of the Republican Party, will be banging on their door for the next 24 months anyway. So there's a non-economic way to bring the Progressive Caucus into the game, give them a little bit more for the price they're paying, and do it in a way that costs the Republicans nothing. Also, I think it benefits McConnell because he's getting really picked on from by Jim DeMint, who's talking about filibustering the deal. And this also takes the limelight off of John McCain, who's trying to steal all the limelight over Don't Ask, Don't Tell by flip-flopping on this position. So I really believe that it would be a good thing to do in the, in the long run. I'm sorry it came to this, and I wish it were done without the top 2% getting that break, and everybody who knows me knows I'm in the top 2%, and I absolutely would be more than willing to have my taxes go up on January 1st. I can afford it. If they do go up, it won't change my lifestyle. If they don't go up, it won't change my lifestyle, and that's why it's not stimulated. Ronaldo, we have two questions that were emailed in earlier. Uh, let me ask them each and get your response to these. First, um, during the health care debate, there was a lot of criticism of Obama for not being a salesperson on this and not bringing the reasons for health care reform to the American people uh, with the same kind of vim and vigor he had when he was running for office. In terms of this bill now, um, again, it's ninth, 11th hour, or 11th hour and 55 minutes almost as the uh, Congress winds down. Uh, has he done 
an adequate job talking about this to the public and getting people in his own party to understand why this is important. What's your feeling about that? I think that's a brilliant question because, see, Howard, no one objectively who's a historian could fault the legislative achievements of this president in his first two years in office. I mean, he achieved more legislative success in two years than Franklin Delano Roosevelt did in his first four years. That's a, that's a, that, that'll stand the test of time, and hopefully most of that legislation will not be reversed in a subsequent Republican uh, House, Senate, and Congress that they might control all of them by 2012. So he did the right legislative thing. The problem is, and he did it again here, his problem is he sought the legislative solution and got it ahead of where the people were at. He didn't do enough selling of that solution before he got the solution. And so the people aren't feeling led. They're feeling jumped. Uh, they're feeling that, 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 that the backroom politics that he said he was going to bring a fresh air to, to Washington, the backroom deal-making is going on at a fevered pace now. That's all this is. I mean, the, Democratic, the head of the Democratic caucus, the co-chairman, Gravalia of Arizona, said that he was on a phone call Sunday night, and, what, and, and the deal hadn't even been told to him then, even though apparently it had been reached by Sunday night. So that what the president has to do, and, he, and he's got to learn this fast because he just blew it again, he's got to start leading in our form of government, you can't go that far in front of people and expect they will catch up. If all you're after is the legislative victory, you will achieve that victory conceivably if you're a good negotiator, and apparently he is. But you will lose the bigger war. In other words, you win the battles, but you lose the war. And the war in this case is he lost the House massively, which, by his terminology, shellacked. And he stands to lose the presidency and the Senate in two years if he doesn't change course. This methodology he used, to achieve this result apparently is the same methodology he was using that got him shellacked, and I think it's going to come back to haunt him. Now, he might feel okay with that, because I think he genuinely is motivated towards trying to do the right thing by the country. Yeah, he did run on the premise that once he's elected, he'd be the president of all the people. And last time I checked, Republicans are people. So he's trying to do his duty to everyone. The problem is he's going to get, he's going to get unseated from the left. I would be surprised if he could survive a Democratic challenge in the primaries. So it maybe he's a one-term president, and maybe from his point of view, that's a price worth paying if he gets what he wants done in the meantime. I, I can't speak for that. I can tell you this, though. He's not leading. It, his speech two days ago, his press conference, where he explained what he did and why he did it, was the first really good articulation, but it came after he'd already done it. He didn't articulate it and let people talk about it and let them take shots at him and then articulate it some more and, to build, and build a consensus behind what he was doing. He went into a back room, and he got a gun held to his head, and he paid. He paid the extortionate bribe. Okay, so he did it. Right. Is that You're good or bad? I don't know, but I think he's losing, he's losing his credibility with his own base, and that's going to hurt him more in the long run. Right. You're, you're actually leading into my second uh, question that's appeared. Plus, we have another caller, um, which in a few moments I'll open up that line. It's 2411 is the last four digits. But let me ask the other question first, which is in looking ahead, uh, to the 2012 election, and I'm actually paraphrasing a couple of questions here. Um, in order for the Republicans to succeed, they need the economy to actually slow down, and the Democrats to succeed need the economy to pick up. Um, have the Republicans, in grasping for this estate tax, have they actually shot themselves in the foot vis-a-vis uh, -vis slowing down the economy and getting in a position where they can gain, regain the presidency or the Congress uh, in 2012. Your thoughts on that? 
Well, as I said when I, in my opening remarks, I think the Republicans may have been clever again too much by half, meaning they've, they've tricked themselves. I mean, when I look at their objectives, which were to do double dip and to create more unemployment and, I, and get make sure that that's how the Democrats got thrown out so they could recapture the Senate and the White House, since that's their stated objective, both by McConnell and Boehner, there's no, there's, no, there's no secret on that, then it seems to me that they've given the president the thing he's been wanting since last March and couldn't get. It'll be interesting to see what Paul Krugman says about this, because Krugman is a big fan of stimulus, as is Stiglitz, as is the economy. So we believe that, that, that it's probably more important to the economy to stimulate, and if you've got to pay extortionate fees to the rich to do it, I'm sorry the rich feel that way and have sent their minions to Congress to achieve this result, but it's, okay, that's what we've got to pay. I think the risk here, Howard, and people need to focus on this, the rich have gotten much richer in this country. The poor have gotten poorer, and the middle class have been decimated. Now, this country doesn't work well when you steepen the sides of the pyramid. Without a vibrant, really strong middle class, this country suffers, and that means the rich suffer too. So just like Marie Antoinette was wrong when she said, let them eat cake, she didn't care because she was an aristocrat, the peasants could be damned. The same thing is true with the wealthy in our country. We need to be a little bit more enlightened in our self-interest. We need to see that it's actually better for us economically, not to mention our children and grandchildren, if we, have, if we help to support a growing middle class. And that would include supporting high, higher education. That would include, include infrastructure. That would include refinancing our states, et cetera, et cetera. We need to build a stronger country. We're getting weaker every day. And I'm concerned that the Republicans have done something that makes it even tougher to climb out of that hole. But in the process, they probably have given Obama what he has desperately wanted, which is more stimulus in 2011, which does give him a better shot at the White House and keeping it in 2012. Okay, well, let's go to that call-in question, too. And again, it's from the area code 805. The last four digits are 2411. And as I open up the line, please tell us who you are and then ask your question. Thank you. You are now live. Hi, my name is Dan Karp, and uh, one thing that I think is overlooked in, in all this is the Republicans over and over again were saying that they got a tax break. It was necessary for them to get the tax break to stimulate job creation. And I think that a lot of times our democracy is weak because we don't do real, real good follow-up in details, in fact. And I think that this should be followed up and the Senate should follow up, or somebody should, just what jobs are being created month to month and coming out of this break that's given to the rich and and followed up in a real factual manner so that it doesn't just get budged and swept under the carpet with a, um, a poor analysis. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. And because the word Republican keeps coming up in this conversation, I've got to make this disclaimer. I'm not a Rep- Democrat or a Republican, haven't been for more than 15 years in either party, so I'm free to criticize both and do. Uh, and, and, and I want everybody to understand that when we're talking about Republicans, it's not as a generic for all time. I, what we're talking about are the group of people who wear that label and who are pushing on a particular agenda at this time in the nation. As Barry Goldwater's uh, granddaughter has said, uh, the party that Barry Goldwater was a Republican in probably doesn't look like the Republican Party today. And I'm sure that's true of Nelson Rockefeller. So it's not about um, Republicans generically, actually. And there are many, many very, very, very 
serious, thoughtful, compassionate Republicans, many of whom belong to the World Business Academy. So I want to make sure people understand that we're not, we're not aiming at Republicans because they're Republicans. We're aiming at a policy that it just so happens the Republicans are strongly pushing. Now, with regard to your comment about should we track the 2% and how it will create jobs, the good news, Dan, is even the Republicans don't think it will. There's nothing to track. Um, you, 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 right now, it's, and, and if you want offline, we can talk about it. There are numerous ways that you can calculate the stimulative effect of a particular tax deduction. But the generic rule is, if when you give somebody a tax deduction, they're not going to go spend that money in the economy, it has no stimulative effect. So as I said earlier, when you're making a quarter million at the top 2% or the top 1%, which was the Schumer proposal, the top 1% make a million dollars a year or more, if you're making that kind of money and you get a couple thousand dollars extra, it does not change your spending pattern. If you were going to take that trip on the cruise, you're still going to take it. If you were going to buy that new car, you're still going to buy it. Conversely, when you put 200 250 $500, a very small amount, in the hands of somebody living at the margin who has deferred, deferred uh, um, consumption because they couldn't afford it and they had to make trade-offs, that person typically will spend what you give them. They don't, you, you give a dollar to someone on the street with a tin cup, they're not going to open a savings account. You give a dollar to a guy who's making a million dollars a year, it's going to go into his bank account. So, and, and those are extreme examples, obviously. But the truth is, for the average American worker, and remember, the average American worker has had a net real loss in his ordinary income for each of the last 10 years. So the average American's done poorer 10 years than he was 10 years ago. Conversely, the upper 2% are dramatically ahead of where they were 10 years ago. So I don't think spending patterns will change, which means there is no stimulative effect. If you don't spend, you don't stimulate. And the way stimulus works, just to remind our listeners, is a very famous principle that a very, very, very famous economist, Samuelson, came up with um, more than 50 years ago, in which he charted the effect of $1 spent in the domestic economy. And he called that the multiplier effect. So when I spend a dollar, any dollar I spend in the domestic U.S. economy, I will produce 5 to $7 of economic benefit. To give you another example, if I spend that same dollar for a military weapon system, I'll only get one and a half to $1.75 back. So clearly when you spend on the domestic side of the ledger, you get significant economic benefit. That's what stimulus is all about, getting a benefit beyond the cost to the government. Okay, Ronaldo, we are almost time up for this topic, and uh, we're going to move into our uh, lightning round in a moment. Any last thoughts on this built and what's happening today before we move on? I hope people will write us to let me know what they think of that idea of uh, putting Don't Dash, Don't Tell, and or the Dream Act, or both, and uh, basically uh, putting it on the skirt tail of, that, uh, of the financial bill, because I think we need to come up with something like that to break this logjam. And I do believe that if we don't break the logjam and get stimulus, we are headed for a very, very severe economic downturn in 2011. So that's my wrap-up on it, Howard. And uh, what's our lightning round today? Well, before we do that, let me just remind our listeners and people online particularly that if you do want to ask a question, to dial in at 347-989-8946 and hit the number one key. In the past, I've often misspoken that and said hit the pound key. No, it's the number one key. And uh, wasn't reading my notes properly. Okay, the lightning round today. Uh, again, normally we discuss a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes, 
such as bonds, dollar energy, and real estate, with, again, particular emphasis on how you can use these ideas yourself. Today's focus is going to be on how you can use exchange-traded funds, often known as ETFs, and also their closely allied cousin, closed-end bond funds, which are known as CEFs. Ronaldo, any quick thoughts on these first? Sure. Well, let, or any of the other areas? Just, let's just let's deal with the ETF quickly. I mean, just for people, an ETF, an ex- exchange-traded fund, it's a fund that, that that tracks like an index. It's it's, it's instead of buying an, an underlying stock, you're buying the ETF, which represents one or more stocks. And it, it's not just stocks, by the way. An ETF can be on a variety of different um, of assets. So an ETF is a way to spread your risk, if you will, across the basket of assets that's represented by that ETF. But in that sense, you're you're, you're betting on how that basket will do in the marketplace. I mean, I, I could give you a more detailed explanation. It runs about a paragraph long, but that's general, generally it. I mean, Howard, do you think I should go any deeper? Is that good enough for this well, conversation? I'll just mention that, for example, the most common index used is uh, one called the SPY, which is essentially a index of the S&P 500. And what you're getting when you buy that is all 500 stocks in the index weighted usually by their uh, size in the economy or size of the company. Um, So that's a simple way you could play the whole stock market to go up. Yeah, by Um, the way, let me me give you another example on that, Howard. Uh, They're very different from mutual funds. In mutual funds, you can't trade from second to second or moment to moment. A mutual fund doesn't change its valuation from second to second. The ETF, because it is traded on the stock exchange like a stock, can be bought and sold at any time during the day, unlike mutual funds, and the price that you will pay will be exactly what that basket of underlying securities or assets are worth at that moment in time. So it's a directly stock exchange traded as opposed to a derived stock exchange, which would be the mutual fund, which owns stocks on the exchange. So I hope that is clarifying to people. Right. First, as a way of disclaimer, as a advisor, I use uh, ETFs very frequently uh, to, to, again, track certain areas. So as I speak, I'm not recommending any one particular of these ETFs, just mentioning them for uh, clarity purposes. Um, but again, what you're getting with an ETF is something similar to mutual fund without a lot of the additional expenses of mutual funds. Most people don't realize when you're buying a traditional mutual fund, even a so-called no-load, you're actually paying a fairly significant amount of your investment into the costs of managing and running that fund and paying for their trading costs, their taxes, uh, and so on and so forth. It can be fairly expensive, and sometimes as much as 3 4 5% of your actual earnings go back to the company that you're invested with. Um, prior to you actually seeing earnings in that, that area. And let me go one other thought on this. Uh, uh, you just one thing before you go there. Um, by contrast, a similar constituted ETF that's not actively managed has an internal expense ratio, meaning the cost, that's anywhere from one-fifth to one-tenth as much, meaning much, much less than a comparable mutual fund. Plus, you get the fact that it is much more nimble. I'm sorry, Ronald. Go ahead. You know, you're basically you're saying they have lower... Very low to extremely low operating and, and virtually no transaction costs, other than the cost of buying and selling, which you would incur with any single stock. Now you referenced Standard and Poor's, and I just wanted—I just thought people would like this historical note. The first ETF actually was Standard and Poor's Deposit Receipt or Spider back in 1993. They haven't been around that long. 
uh, and and we won't cover deposit receipts today because that's another whole story. But a re the brief version is a deposit receipt is sort of like a shadow of the original. It's a derivative, if you will, of the original instrument. So the Spider SPDR, uh, which started in 1993, the first one was the Standard Poor's deposit receipts. That's that was the first ETF. Right. Now closed-end funds are somewhat similar to ETFs and somewhat similar to their comparable mutual fund cousins. But unlike mutual funds, there's a limited number of shares of each of these closed-end funds. And that's what the term close means, meaning the more people who want to buy this, if it's a regular mutual fund, they simply expand the number of shares. Uh, so you could have 100 shares of mutual fund. You could have a million shares of mutual fund, depending on how many people invest in it. With a closed-end fund, it's akin to a stock in a company. That number is fixed unless they actually apply to have that number expanded um, and do a dilution of the number of shares. So you're, again, having a closed-end fund, it, you're reducing the cost. They're not actively managed. They simply hold a certain portfolio uh, of certain types of bonds. And there's many, many different types of bond funds uh, that are out there, too, far too numerous to mention anyone in particular. Uh, but it is a simple way and a very efficient way to hold bonds and fixed income um, in specific categories or to have a blend of these which reduces your risk of owning any one single bond that may represent either a company or a country or a municipal district uh, that may get into trouble down the road, possibly. So again, simplicity is the key here and um, reducing risk overall by diversifying. So let me get category. So let me get to the um, – first of all, I want to make sure our listeners know that the reason we do one term every show is so you can think about it. You can look up on the web. You can start to Google it. You can uh, uh, ask us a question about ETFs next month. Don't You don't have to think we've just because we've covered it very briefly here, uh, we're shutting the door. The idea is to, to build your financial literacy. And if you decide you want to know more about these in, in greater detail, any of the terminology that we – regularly introduced each month on the show, please don't hesitate to bring that up as a question. The fact that we covered it this month doesn't mean that we're through talking right. about it. It means we've laid the table, so to speak. You'll let us know what, if you want, in the way of more information, or if that's adequate for your purposes. That said, I'd like to go to the lightning round, which, um, and you just heard uh, that the transition is um, closed-end bond funds, or CEFs. Um, I want to just alert people how nervous I am about bonds. I think people heard me say that last month. Why I was nervous about it, I can restate it if you want today. But if you haven't been following, there's been a huge run on U.S. Treasury bonds in the last two days. Um, um, what's happening is yields are jumping, uh, 776 basis points in one day alone. Uh, you're, you're, you've had a giant exit from the market in the last two days as people reprice. Uh, and so I just want people to know I see continuing weakness in bonds. Why? Because of inflation. Now, there are well, certain bonds in certain countries yeah. I don't see that as much with, which we'll talk about. But in the U.S. bonds, I have been warning now for several months. I'm reissuing the warning. Be careful of bonds generally because of inflation, and specifically be really concerned about municipal bonds because the risk of default is very high. And remember, risk Ronaldo, municipal let me bonds. Break that, let me break that down for people because this actually goes back in terms of consideration to 2008 and the, the economic crash we saw in the fall of 2008. During that period of time when people were and institutions were rapidly selling stock, 
they began moving money out of the stock market into other places. And those other places, in many cases, tended to be U.S. Treasuries. U.S. Treasuries as an instrument are backed by the full faith of the U.S. government. So in terms of safety of the, the entity itself, not necessarily the principal, but the safety of the entity, they're highly safe. What people overlooked, the careless investor overlooked, is that just because they're backed by the U.S. government does not mean their price does not change in the open market when you go to sell. Now, when people leave the stock market and go into bonds because of the uh, basic supply and demand issue, the if you're buying bonds, then the price of the bond goes up. Instead of being 1000 to buy a certain bond, it might be 1010 or 1100 or whatever dollar amount is, is uh, a prize for that particular entity. Um, and when the price goes up, what is known as the relative yield or the yield to maturity that you actually earn will go down. During the panic of 2008, yields were actually in the negative area for some treasuries because demand was so high. Now, flip side, when people move out of treasuries and move back into the stock market, which is what's beginning to happen, the demand for the treasuries or other bonds goes down. When it goes down, in order to reattract buyers, the yields go back up. So you have this seesaw that you have to be in tune with what is happening in the overall markets and be able to use these instruments to your advantage, but you have to understand how they behave. It's far more complicated than, than simply saying don't go into bonds or watch bonds. You really have to know both the length of duration of the bond, whether it's a five-year, one-year, 30-year, how long that bond is around for, what the price is you're paying, how that affects your own personal account. There's a lot of little factors. Well, and let me just summarize. We just covered two separately, so I wanted to clarify this for people. Mm -hmm. What I addressed was the, the, the risk of inflation is that the government has to pay more of a yield to attract people to take U.S.-denominated bonds, dollar-denominated bonds. That risk of inflation is a predictable risk that you can decide it's real or not. You can say the risk of deflation is as great as inflation. I've been in the camp of I think inflation is a bigger risk because the Fed has decided it wants a little inflation, and it's basically telegraphed to us. The point Howard's making is the second point, which is the flow of funds between the bond market and the stock market also affects yields. So when the fund flow is back towards the market, is Howard's point, yields have to go up to track money back in the bond market. As yields go up, the value of the old bonds goes down because now I can have a newer bond with a higher yield. Why would I buy an older bond with a lower yield? So I don't. So the price of the bond falls. Now, why is this so important? Because if you have a yield on a bond of 1, 2, 3, 4%, and the price, which means the interest it pays per annum, and the price changes by 5%, you get whacked real bad. So, you, so if, if, the people who if, do bonds, I want to just point out, the people who do bonds typically are people who are looking at fixed income. And that often is not, in these kinds of times, the safety zone that people think of when they think of fixed income. Go ahead, Howard. Okay. Now, going back to your statement about municipal bonds, municipal bonds come in many different shapes and sizes. And a lot of the issues that I think, as Ronaldo mentioned, may have some risk factor involved tend to be the ones other than state-issued bonds. Uh, despite all the news we hear about states being in fiscal trouble, such as California was a couple of years ago, states cannot go bankrupt. Well, have in municipalities the past can. Municipalities can, but the states, 
for example, the general obligation bonds of a state like California, even though they've been downgraded to a single A or single A minus in the past couple of years, the state still has to make good on the interest payments of those bonds and verify the the uh, value of the bond and hold it. Um, well, here's here's where you and I part company, though, Howard. I, I think that times could become so severe again, and 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 states have done in effect reorganizations in the past. I, I think that um, bondholders could be met with a big surprise if they think a state like California and it hits the wall, uh, which I don't think it will now because I think the people correctly changed the dynamic of Sacramento at the last election by creating uh, a new methodology for selecting or the the, the districts in which their state representatives will run, and also by um, and by by creating a, a, a new rule that says you only need 50 percent or more to pass a budget, so there's less uh, Christmas tree going on, there's less the uh, budgets being hijacked. And the third thing that the America that the California voter did in this last thing, which is interesting, is they basically have set it so that when we in California when they when they create a budget now in the future they are going to be able to go after certain kinds of activities which the state previously couldn't control financially. And you've already started to see this in the, in the furloughs and that sort of thing. So we're looking to get a lot of pain in California and a lot of, a lot of issues that will get resolved, including the courts weighing in in California again because the overcrowding of the prisons was so bad that they've been releasing prisoners not because their sentences were served but because there literally weren't jails to hold them. So there's a lot of factors that happen. And in those kinds of conditions, which can get extreme, Bondholders could be at some risk, and that's why the bond prices in California, the yields keep going up because California is having a harder and harder time attracting debt. So I just want to end with um, I, I, Howard's right. Fundamentally, states theoretically don't go bankrupt. We're in very uncharted waters right now. Municipalities can do it all the time. General obligation bonds, or GOs as Howard referred to them, are the ones that I'm a little bit nervous about. Certain kinds of revenue bonds, however, I'm perfectly fine with. For example, people are going to keep taking BART in San Francisco. When they do, the money that goes into the fare box is going to go to pay the bond indebtedness. So a revenue bond tied to an asset that actually creates revenue is different than a general obligation bond. Having right. said and, that... And, and, and we do differ on this case. I, I much more strongly favor uh, general obligation bonds of the state. Um, and we'll just... I think we'll no, and, and, and move on, on that. Because we, no, but you're right. I mean, as a general rule, you're right. However, these are... As they said, the Chinese curse, we live in interesting times. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very nervous about bonds, and I think the record of bonds in California, particularly for the last two years, bears up that I, my caution would have been well served you well because your yields have been terrible. <laughs> right? So the face value of bonds in California are not doing well in the last 24 months, and therefore I would have told you you shouldn't have been in them, and if you were, you might have gotten hurt in the general the, obligation area. But let me go to other countries. The final answer all this. I'm sorry, the final answer to all this before we move on is just like any other aspect of the market, um, when you're dealing with your own individual particular situation, the rule is use extreme caution and make sure you know what you're doing or you're working with a knowledgeable advisor who is aligning whatever you purchase, whatever you sell, in accord with your particular needs and circumstances. There is no simple one-step answer on any of these issues. By the way, uh, again, I... Howard, that's great. I didn't ask you to do that, but that's a great setup. I just want to make a comment. It's sort of like a commercial. Um, we at the Academy, uh, I, I don't make any money doing this, but we at the Academy as a service will review in – we can't do it on, the, on this program, of course. We will review in confidence and do 
for investors frequently their individual portfolios or individual asset balance sheets and make comments about them, although we don't buy or sell stocks and we don't, we're not licensed to do so and don't wish to do so, we will help people analyze their own individual situation to see what's really at the level of very specific, their portfolio. And the Academy does charge a fee to have me do that. I just want to say to the public, I don't make a nickel on that. All that goes to the Academy as a service to support our economic work, and we're more than happy to do that. So if anybody listening wants the us to fly spec your situation in confidence, we can do that and we'll do that for you. Uh, right. Let me and one additional one, one additional disclaimer on that is that in my role as an advisor, Morgan Stanley, Smith Barney, I do not participate in that activity that Renato Howard just described. Um, so never that, does and won't out of the question. We, we don't. Yeah. I don't do that. No, okay. Howard's not involved. Howard's on this show and as a director. That's done in a totally separate area with no involvement of Howard whatsoever. And right. for good now, reason, let me thank remind you. Uh, listeners, and again, our call-in number is 347-989-8946, and hit the number one key. With that, Ronaldo, let's move on to our last topic. Uh, I want, again, let me just finish a couple more bonds, because I oh, wanted to okay. tell people I've, we found some interesting bonds in Zurich. Uh, so we, there's some Swiss bonds we like that are paying a 1.34 yield, and they're denominated in Swiss francs, which is a hedge that against the dollar. actually is our next topic. <laughs> oh, is it? Yes. Okay. Yes. So let, let's actually let me state the topic here for everybody, and these are what considerations uh, could be involved or should be involved in diversifying your assets through investments outside the United States. And some of the countries we've been looking at, again, Switzerland is one, Brazil is another, China is another, Australia, and Australia possibly as well. Um, how would you do this as a possible hedge against economic upheaval? And again, will there be upheaval? We don't know. Ronaldo, you're on. Okay, so we, I started I was just digressing out of domestic bonds to give people away. Uh, for the people who listen to this show for the last year or so, they know we started recommending Brazilian industrial development bonds when they were paying a, the worst, best case was 12% yield, payable in, in reals. Um, we started that when the real was at 41. It's at 58 or 59 today. So you've gotten a nice increase on the on the value of the bond plus the interest you've been making on that bond for the last couple of years has been very attractive because it's way more than 9 or 12% respectively. Now, those bonds are very hard to get these days. They're not issuing many. Uh, in fact, I don't think they're issuing any at all right now. So you have to find them on the used bond market, so to speak. But they still can be an attractive way to balance your portfolio if you can find the right yield. And there are places to do that and ways to do that. So we do recommend that if you can get a Brazilian industrial development bond, and if it's denominated in reals at a, at, a, at a conversion ratio, currency ratio of 60 or less to the dollar, it's probably a safe bet, and, a, and it's a higher interest rate yield than you can get in America. We, I just mentioned Switzerland. We like Swiss-denominated bonds because we believe the Swiss franc is very strong, and if the dollar continues to be weak, and I think it will get much weaker in the years ahead, then you've got to hedge against that dollar fall. We also talked about uh, the idea so of Australian people, bonds a year ago, right, Howard? Didn't we? Didn't we do an Australian? We did mention bond Australian thing? bonds, but I, I think it's appropriate, actually, before we do the Australian, uh, to mention the notion of currency risk that's involved with buying in a foreign currency. Okay. And do you want to take this one? Go, go. You mentioned. Okay. Um, again, you have to bear in mind that currencies vacillate against each other every single day in the market, and if you are holding something in a foreign currency, it may be yielding. 10, 12, 15% or whatever that bond is issuing. But the currency, let's say, against the U.S. dollar can rise or fall. Um, as we're about to step into Australian bonds, we should note that in, I think it was 2008, 
the Australian dollar fell something like 30 or 40 percent against the U.S. dollar. So if you were earning 7, 8 percent on an Australian bond and the currency fell, say, 37 percent, you actually had a net loss of 30 percent, not the gain of the 7 percent interest. On the flip side, the Australian dollar recently leaped back forward and was almost on par with the U.S. dollar, which means you could have potentially gained had you bought at the lower price just on the currency rise itself as well as the interest rate. Currency is notoriously unstable, unpredictable, and you need to be aware that this can be an extra layer of risk when you're trying to get that extra return. Good. Ronaldo, okay, thank you. So, so the point of mentioning Australian bonds, Swiss bonds, Brazilian bonds, and, and the yields are different depending on which country. They're very, very low in Switzerland. They're very, very reasonable in, in Brazil. They're in between the, the two in, in Australia. Um, it's just a way for you to get into a, a hedge against the U.S. dollar for the future and to get higher interest yields than you can get domestically. We also, last month, I believe, we talked about recommending um, grain commodities, and we continue to feel that's a good idea. Uh, we, I, I don't like rice, by the way, and often you can avoid rice in the basket of commodities you buy with an ETF. See, that's why we had to explain that word, because it comes in here. Um, and the reason I avoid rice, just to let you know, is because rice is basically a – it's almost a currency. It's a political currency in Asia. And it's, it's managed by countries politically for domestic reasons and therefore is less a net net result of what's going on in the, in the global trade at the moment. I gave several reasons last month why we liked, um, for example, we like soybeans, we like wheat, bulgur, we like barley, virtually all the cereal grains. When you, I'm not wild about sugar because it's also an odd commodity for different reasons, but unfortunately sugar often is buried in the basket of commodities you have to get. Um, I wouldn't let that stop you, but I, if you can get it without sugar, it's better. The, it's just like life. It's, you're better without the sugar. But if you can do the grains, what happens is you're going to get a hedge against the U.S. dollar because as the dollar becomes less valuable, the price of the grains go up on world markets. Number two, population growth itself is pushing. We need more and more food. Number three, Asians are now substituting protein for grain. So if you want to eat chicken, pigs, or cows, on average, you're going to put up seven pounds of grain for one pound of protein. That means that seven times as much demand for that same grain, even if the population didn't change. And that is really happening very, very strongly now as India builds a bigger middle class and as, as China starts to build a middle class. So those are all factors. And the last one, which is the biggest one that we saw graphically depicted this year, uh, is, the, is the crop failure in Russia, where as much as 40 to 45 percent of the entire crop was, was destroyed by climate change. So you have climate change pressures, and you have a drought in Australia that went for eight years. They had one year of relief. We'll see how long the relief lasts. So when you have these pressures of the climate, which makes it harder to grow large crops in large quantities in large areas, and you have these other pushes, population, substitution of protein for cereals, et cetera, what you get is you get a rising likelihood, and you get a hedge against the U.S. dollar. I could keep going with some other things. I just want to touch on one real quickly that I get questions about, frankly, quite often, and that's the real estate market in the U.S. Um, the real estate market, and then I'm going to end, by the way, Howard, I want to just end on a comment on the Goldman Sachs prediction. In the okay, we, we are at about uh, five minutes to go on the show. So. Okay, so the real quick one is that the, 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 the foreclosures have not bottomed out in the U.S., and um, the the, the and it seems to me there's a nice firming going on in the upper end of real estate. But the lower end continues to suffer. 
Um, and the price of what you get on a foreclosed property is down lower than it was even in the markdown, if you will, is running about 31% this year. It was only 29% last year. Uh, banks are taking bigger haircuts on foreclosed properties. Uh, they're by about uh, 41% down from the prior period. So what's, what's, what's happening is that the, 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 the foreclosure market is putting pressure not only on the homes that are foreclosed, which are generating good deals for people, but it's also putting pressure on the guy who lives next door because his house isn't worth as much anymore. So we just need to look at those twin arguments. The market in the housing market in the U.S. has not bottomed out nationwide yet. It has in certain key markets, quite a few actually. In certain key markets, Phoenix and Las Vegas, it's still very much dropping. In others, it's starting to stabilize in the lower sector. And in the higher-end sector, it seems to be firming up just about across the board. That's my quick comment on housing. I didn't have a chance to touch on commercial real estate. Maybe we'll do that next issue, next month. Uh, let me just swing over real quickly. I I find that a lot of Goldman Sachs's work is put out, I believe, for the effect it will have rather than because the partners at Goldman Sachs really believe it. The What they issued yesterday, uh, their forecast for the upcoming year, 2011, I think is sad. Uh, they're predicting a growth of 19 over 19% in the S&P 500. But here's what it's based on. It's based on a belief that the U.S. economy is going to grow by 4.6% in 2011. I just think that's unconscionable. Is it possible? Maybe in my wildest dreams. Is it probable? Not even a chance. It's so unlikely. So why do they put out a forecast like that? Which, by the way, is more than a point and a quarter above what Citigroup is saying, and Citigroup is being optimistic. Why does Goldman do that? I think they do it because they want to get people to drive back into those equity markets. Remember, Goldman makes commissions. And if you can get people to buy and sell, you make more commissions. So I think there's a lot of self-interest there and self-dealing. And I just would be very careful that people don't read the Goldman stuff or even the Citigroup stuff, which is more conservative. Take it all with a grain of salt. Um, the Academy still believes that we'll be if, – if the bill goes through, as Obama has designed it, I think we're looking at a maybe 2.5% real GDP growth next year. Let's see. If it doesn't go through, we're looking at double dip. And we'll report every month until we're out of the woods. We'll be reporting on what we see happening in Washington on the fiscal and the monetary side so you can keep looking at where your risks are and how you can find safety as much as is possible in a very tumultuous situation. Right. So that's Before sort of my wrap-up on those, Howard. Okay. Before we turn over to any last-minute questions, I'll just mention this just came across the wire on the New York Times website. Um, that the Democrats' tax compromise could hinge on whether or not um, energy provisions are added that would continue to fund uh, clean energy and uh, green energy projects. So we'll certainly be following up on that next week. Uh, with that, I'm going to ask if there's any last-minute questions um, on call-ins. And um, if I don't see any in the, on pop-up on the board, we'll end up the show right now. Um, and with that, I thank you for listening. And hope you tune in next month, where, again, we'll be following what's happening live with Congress. It's going to be an interesting session come January. Thank Ronaldo, everyone thanks for listening. Again. Well, thank you, Howard, and thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, be sure to tell your friends this is a public service. So the more people who listen, the more the questions come in, the more it forces us to do a better job on our end. And uh, we love feedback, so please don't hesitate, whether you agree or disagree, or you've got a different idea entirely. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, it's part of what we do because we're trying to be responsible for the whole society. And Thank send you. those emails into the Academy. And uh, with that, we're going to conclude today's show. Thank you all for listening. And again, we'll hopefully catch you all next month. Bye-bye now.